All right. Good to see all of you here this morning. Well, today is a start of a new sermon series, and we're looking at the criticisms that Jesus faced. The criticisms that Jesus faced. That just seems like an odd statement, right? Um, maybe you're already wondering, how could Jesus face criticism? I mean, he's the son of God, after all, right? And, and his name is actually the Prince of Peace. Why would anyone have anything against him? I mean, doesn't Jesus operate on this, let's just get, all, get together and, and get along, that kind of mentality? He's just a likable guy, isn't he, Jesus? I just can't believe that Jesus would face criticism. But a quick survey of the Gospels will show you that Jesus took not just some criticism, but a lot of criticism. And actually, as you start looking for that, you know, it's kind of like when you buy a car and then you see them everywhere. If you actually go into the gospel, start looking for Jesus being criticized, it's everywhere. Um, he is criticized by all sorts of different groups, from Pharisees, from scribes, from Herodians, from Romans, from members of his own family. The list just goes on and on and on. He he was criticized, and some of that criticism was really surprisingly harsh. And yet we see Jesus responding pretty well to that criticism, probably way better than I would. Um, in fact, he almost seemingly expects to be criticized. And he just, just keeps, keeps rolling. He just keeps preaching, just keeps teaching, just keeps doing what he does, right? And it is true that our world seems to think that Jesus is this soft and cuddly character that no one could ever have a problem with Jesus, but, but those people probably haven't read the Bible, right? I mean, they don't know exactly what's going on in Jesus's mind, um, because that's just simply not true. I wrote a little bit in the church blog about that, and um, you know, you can scan almost any chapter in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or John, <laughs> the Gospels, and you'll realize that really a large part of Jesus' ministry involved alienating people <laughs> around him. That's what he did a lot of the time. Think about it. You remember the time, the many times that he, that he basically has this habit of showing up at what we would consider pastor's conferences, right, where all the high fluting people of the church are there, and, and he gives these people at those conferences affectionate names, right? Like hypocrite and children of hell and blind guides and whitewashed tombs and even vipers. I mean, those aren't very nice, cuddly words, right? And don't, don't forget Jesus' statement in Matthew 10, verse 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake find it. Again, those, those, those don't seem to be very cuddly, soft words, right? Again, if, if you take a good look at Scripture, we can actually see that some of the criticisms going Jesus' way are actually warranted. 
He actually did some of those things that people have said. He, it almost seems like he's at times trying to stir the pot, trying to get a reaction out of people. And yet, unlike the shocking headlines that we see in social media to try to get you to read the article, right? Jesus actually has a purpose in the things that he does, the things that he says. I found this quote from Danny Franks. He wrote a book called People Are the Mission. And he says, Jesus' offensive statements weren't accidental. They had a purpose. He used offense to shock the self-righteous with their own depravity, to give hopeless outsiders a glimpse of hope, and to turn a centuries-old religious system on its head as he ushered in a new kingdom. That couldn't be done by tiptoeing around the real problems with the religious establishment. Jesus not only embodied truth, but he spoke truth. And the truth that he spoke frequently offended and sometimes cut deep. In fact, a, an example that I would share with you is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You know, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by the devil, and then he returns. You know what he does? Luke 4, verse 16, he actually he, he heads home. He went to Nazareth, where he had grown, been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Kind of an interesting statement. And then it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? It really is a great moment. It's almost one of those moments that we'd all like to have, right? We return home go to our hometown and, and we see people and they're just, oh, look at how you turned out. You're just, we're just so proud of you. You are such an amazing person. So look at Jesus. He's growing up. He's doing all the good things. He's going to be great. And you know where he's from, right? He's from here. Can you believe that? He's, he's going to make us all proud. You did know that I taught him in Sunday school, right? I mean, you could just imagine, this is just this great moment at home. <laughs> and yet Jesus can't leave it alone. He just can't leave it alone. He begins to speak again out of this great moment. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, did, Do you here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum? Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Quick summary of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, he's basically saying, you know what? I'm here before you. 
You think I'm some prophet <laughs> that was raised among you. But you know what? You have had other prophets come to you, and you rejected them. You remember Elijah, <laughs> one of the big-name prophets for Israel, right? He saved a widow. Reality was he could have saved many widows, but you rejected him. <laughs> Elisha, you remember him? <laughs> he healed a leper. There were many lepers in the time of Elisha. He didn't heal them <laughs> because they did not believe who he was. <laughs> he could only heal Naaman, the Syrian, who wasn't a Jew. <laughs> you know what Jesus is saying? In one fell swoop, Jesus is telling the chosen people from his hometown that they've blown it. They're, they're blessing from God. They're not going to receive it because they will reject the person coming in the name of the Lord. They will not believe that Jesus is more than a prophet. <laughs> and you know what? That blessing that was reserved for them, it will be given to others. It will be given to even Gentiles. Wow. You think the people there got that message? With just a few words, Jesus has gone from Nazareth's favorite son to public enemy number one. Read verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They were ticked. They were upset with Jesus. They got up, they drove him out of town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. That's what they wanted to do with him. They were mad. They couldn't believe he said such disrespectful things. <laughs> so why would Jesus do that? Why would he take this grand moment and, you know, where everyone's looking at him, they're happy with him, and then he'd turn on them and push them towards anger and criticism? Why would he do that? Because they were missing out on what God had for them. He wanted way more for them, but they would not believe who he had sent. And they were just leaving too much on the table for him to just ignore it. Right? So what does he do? He pushes them, even to the point of criticism. So maybe, just maybe, one day they might look at him and say, you know what? Maybe there's more to this guy than what we thought. And this was just the beginning of his ministry. Here they are trying to throw him off the cliff. These were, his, these were his family, his hometown, right? No wonder they crucified him. Jesus didn't leave just being a good teacher as an option of who he was. He wasn't going to stand for that. He wasn't going to allow that to happen. He just, there was just too much that God wanted to do for them to just be a good teacher. And so let's not quickly dive into the first topic in the series. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. Um, beginning with verse 14, we're actually going to see Jesus face criticism from, the, from an odd place, really. The disciples of John the Baptist. You think that would be someone that you wouldn't want to necessarily offend, right? John the Baptist is a good guy. And they had some questions about how Jesus and his disciples went about things. So before we jump into verse 14, we actually need to establish a little bit of context. Um, look back just a few verses in Matthew 9 to verse 9. Um, 
Jesus has just called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him, um, to be his disciple. And when Matthew chooses to follow him, do you know what Jesus does? He throws a party. He celebrates. He throws a party in Matthew's honor. And I just have a question. We just introduced Addie, right? Do we get excited when, when someone decides to follow Jesus? Yeah, right? Of course we do. When we have a baptism, that is a huge celebration for the church. We celebrate that with all we've got because following Jesus, that's important, right? We actually equate following Jesus with what? Salvation. We're talking about salvation here. Salvation is important. And we're not the only ones celebrating when someone decides to follow Jesus, right? We, we know in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is talking about this in the parable of the lost coin. Jesus says, in the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Praising the Lord. They're, they're celebrating in heaven, right? A few verses before that in the parable of the lost sheep, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What's being said here? Salvation is serious business, right? It's worth celebrating. It is a huge deal. Even it's serious business for heaven, right? When they see this happening on earth, it is a celebration time. So here Jesus is. He's modeling this celebration with Matthew here on earth, right? Which should really translate to us, even on earth, we should be taking salvation seriously, right? We should celebrate, right? When someone comes to follow the Lord and, and, and be saved in the Lord. And not surprisingly, who shows up to Matthew's celebration? His friends do. His colleagues do. And they're hanging out with Jesus. But just like last week with Zacchaeus, not everyone is celebrating. Not everyone is excited about Jesus throwing Matthew a party, right? In fact, there are people there who are muttering. And again, I just love that word, muttering. Just, just says everything, doesn't it? Muttering. Muttering. There, there's, there, there, uh, there are people there who are criticizing Jesus. They're muttering. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I guess that wasn't much of a mutter. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he do that? And again, that might sound like an honest question, but it's definitely a criticism. <clears throat> the Pharisees, we know the Pharisees, right? They have this habit of being very strict in the way they avoid people and things that just might make them a little bit dirty, right? Unworthy. In their opinion, here is Jesus. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and he really shouldn't represent Israel that way. He shouldn't be hanging around people like that, right? Now, this question that, that they bring up is as much about identity as it is purity. Identity versus purity. <laughs> because it comes back to who do the Pharisees think Jesus is? 
Who do the, who do the Pharisees, think, Pharisees think Jesus is? If they think he's the son of God, they're probably not questioning him, right? <laughs> but because they think he's just a rabbi, they can be critical of him. He's just a rabbi, and he shouldn't be hanging out with people like that. And that really is their biggest problem. They don't see Jesus for who he actually is. It's kind of funny here because the Pharisees don't ask Jesus to answer their question, right? If you look at the story, they're asking Jesus' disciples. And yet, who do they get the answer from? <laughs> Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So Jesus seems to go along with the Pharisees' kind of self-perceptions of themselves. They, they think that they are healthy, right? And healthy people don't need, thick, need doctors. So the doctor's really not there for them, right? But that also means if you are sick and you don't know it, the doctor's also not there for you either. Because you're not going to go to a doctor unless you think you need a doctor, right? And they also would never go to Jesus to be their doctor. That's the truth, right? He's just a rabbi. He's just a teacher. Why would they go to, go to Jesus to find help? So just like in the story with the people of Nazareth, they're missing out on God's blessing. And what does it come back to? It comes back to who they think Jesus is, right? They don't think they need help, for one, but they also don't really read this, the situation correctly. They don't see a solution there to the problem. So you ready for the push? What does Jesus say next in that story? You following along with me? Jesus gives them a command. In verse 13 it says, But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. What do we see Jesus doing here? Much as a rabbi would give a command to his disciples, Jesus tells the Pharisees to go and learn. What position is he taking? <laughs> He's taking the position over these people, right? He's not intimidated by these, these religious leaders, right? He treats them as students rather than teachers. And they think he's a rabbi. And they certainly don't think he's their rabbi, right? And this would have most likely, definitely been very disrespectful to them. Who does this guy think he is? That is the question of the story, right? Who does this guy think he is? Certainly not our rabbi. Why is he giving us a command? What was the command? Jesus gives them an Old Testament quote to study. God speaking through the prophet Hosea says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's from Hosea 6.6. 6. And if you go back to Hosea 6.6 6, and you kind of read through that story, you, you see that actually God through the prophet Hosea is calling Israel to show mercy in their human relationships. He's telling them, don't just focus your attention on pleasing God, pleasing me. Don't just think about sacrifices for me and not worry about your relationship with others. You've got to treat others right. <laughs> I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice, right? Almost kind of leads back to Jesus' great commandment, love God, love others. And Jesus actually already covered this topic back in Luke 6 when he talks about being merciful because your Father in heaven is merciful, right? So that's an important teaching of the church. And then Jesus relates that teaching from Hosea 6, 6 back into his own ministry when he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. So he's saying to, to these teachers of the law, the Pharisees, he's telling them that these people who I'm eating with, these people who I value, these people who, who you might not think deserve to eat dinner with me, a.k.a. I would like to offer them mercy, even though they don't deserve it. These tax collectors and sinners, as you say, these are the one that God desires to save. These are the one whom God desires to show mercy. <laughs> For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus certainly doesn't sound like a lowly rabbi, does he? And this leads us into verse 14, and, and one final criticism that we'll look at this morning. Verse 14, it says, the, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? It's actually a similar question to what the Pharisees were act, act, uh, asking um, probably also because of this party that Jesus and his disciples were at with Matthew. They're just kind of looking at this guy going, who are you? What are you doing? Right? And again, it's a question about identity. They're asking, why are you different? Why do you think you're so special <laughs> that you don't even have to follow the, the religious rules that John the Baptist followed? Are you somehow more important than John the Baptist, that you don't have to fast? Why don't your followers fast like all the other followers? <laughs> and what we know about John the Baptist earlier in Matthew is that he really is well known for his very strict, simple lifestyle. And he's very much like the Pharisees in that, right? They're, they're very, very intentional about how, how they live their lives. They're very intentional. They're very self-disciplined in their lifestyle. And they they work really hard at living into these spiritual disciplines. And when they observe Jesus and his disciples, especially as they're out at a party with Matthew and his friends, they most likely, they're thinking, you know, this group of people, they're not like us at all. They're not trying to behave themselves. They're actually out there looking like they have no self-control at all. No desire for these spiritual disciplines that, that we value very highly, right? And fasting was one of those important disciplines that the people should have been following. In fact, fasting was and still is an important part of Judaism. Jew Jewish people fast each year on the Day of Atonement. During the time of Jesus, it was a, a common practice that they would fast two days a week on Mondays and Thursdays from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then they would break their fast. And how do you break a fast? You eat, right? But it appears that Jesus and his disciples, 
they weren't fasting on those commonly observed fasting days. What in the world is this rabbi doing, right? Now, there really are two important things to keep in mind in this conversation. <laughs> First of all, as we go through this series, it's important to not turn what Jesus is doing or not doing or saying or not saying into a straw man, which what I'm meaning by that is you don't look at what Jesus says and automatically make it a rule, okay? For instance, in this case, just because Jesus is not fasting doesn't mean that he's against fasting, okay? I mean, that's important for us to point out. Fasting was and still is an important practice within the people of God. That is one of our important practices. I'm not trying to bash on fasting or spiritual disciplines for that matter. The second thing is, is to look at the importance of fasting, actually. And tied into fasting, there's two other things that the, the Jewish people were very much into, mourning and lamenting. And there absolutely is nothing wrong with fasting or mourning or lamenting. It's really important, actually, for us to take account for where we are and, and be sorry for what we've done, right? Or, or maybe feel terrible about some difficult thing that has happened in our lives. Maybe that we've caused, right? And, and as an example, we actually see in the Babylonian exile for the Israelites, they were taken away from their land, right? They were taken away from the temple. Um, they, when they are taken away from the temple, they have lost all of their spiritual practices. They've lost all of that. And, and in the same breath, they think they've lost the presence of God in the same process, because that's where God is, right? In the temple. And what do they do? You see in their writings that, that they, they mourned their loss, as they should have. They mourned as they were in exile in Babylon. They just wanted so badly to be back home and to do those same spiritual practices that they grew up doing. They were lamenting the fact that they had caused this to happen. They were upset about it. They desperately wanted to go back home, right? Back into the presence of God. And fasting is a part of that. They were determined to show to God that, that this was important to them. I'm going to give up food for this. I want this so badly, God. Lord, hear our cry. See how important this is to us. This was important <laughs> in their lives and getting them back to where they needed to be, right? So mourning and, and, and lamenting and fasting are all kind of part of the same practices, actually. But we also have to keep in mind that fasting or lamenting or mourning um, is not meant to last forever. When, when we are lamenting, when we are feeling sorry for something that we've done or something that God has done, we're feeling sad about a situation, that's okay. We should do that. That's honest, right? But don't we serve a God who's a God of hope? Don't we serve a God who is a God of transformation, resurrection, celebration, don't we ever hope as we're fasting for this that we would break that fast, right? When that moment comes, when they once again were in the presence of God, they were home in their temple, and what would they do then? Would they continue fasting? 
No, they would celebrate like there's no tomorrow. That would be a huge day, right? Celebrate. We're, we're there. The thing that we've been mourning for, lamenting for, fasting for, it's here. And this is what we have to understand from Jesus' response to the disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus didn't come out and say when they were questioning him, why don't you guys fast? He didn't say, oh, yeah, totally forgot about fasting. Yeah, we should be doing that. He didn't say that, right? What was his answer? Verse 15 is kind of an odd answer. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? What is he saying? The thing that you guys have been fasting for, it's arrived. That thing that you've been mourning about and lamenting about, you don't have to anymore. How could I let my disciples mourn and lament? How could I let my disciples fast? Why? You are right, I'm not John the Baptist. I'm greater than John the Baptist. I am not just another prophet. The Savior is here. The kingdom has come. The hopes and dreams that you have have come true. This is not a time of mourning. This is a not a time to fast. This is a time to celebrate. So how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? What were the disciples of John the Baptist missing? They were missing who Jesus was, right? They were missing the, the identity of Jesus. They also had an identity problem, right? Now, don't miss how Jesus connects who he is with a wedding. In Jewish culture, in this time when Jesus was alive, right, on the planet, the wedding was not some small party. The wedding was a celebration of a lifetime, right? Now, now I've been to a few weddings, and some of the ones that I've been to, some, not saying all of them, because I would offend a lot of people here, but um, some of those weddings, they just don't feel like parties. Um, sometimes they actually feel like someone's having a power-hungry struggles, but that's a whole other thing, right? That's not a Jewish wedding. Jews know how to do weddings. Jews know how to celebrate. And another difference, the couple doesn't have everyone show up and celebrate them and leave, go to their honeymoon, right? Instead, this is a week-long festival. And it's not just the people who's left, it's everyone. It's the celebration of these two families coming together. It's way more about the two families than the couple, right? They're celebrating this huge celebration. And this wedding celebration is so important that one source that I read actually says that the rabbis had made an official ruling that all in attendance with the bridegroom were relieved of all religious observances if it would lessen their joy. So it was illegal to not be rejoicing at a party, at this party, the, the wedding celebration. This event was a celebration of joy, right? Verse 15 again, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. I mean, how did Jesus respond to the criticism of, of John's disciples? He points to himself. 
he informs them that, that the event of a lifetime, the celebration of a lifetime is present with them. I'm the one in him, <laughs> right? All of John's and, and his followers' preparations, all of his work they've been doing and fasting and all the spiritual disciplines, all of those things are in preparation for him, right? The time for those have passed for now. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be celebrating. <laughs> and just as when two people get married and everyone pauses from their normal routines, including spiritual disciplines, <laughs> so they can celebrate, so too when people are around Jesus, what should they do? They should want to celebrate. I mean, have you ever envisioned Jesus as the life of the party? You guys aren't looking very convincing out there. Have you ever thought about Jesus as the life of the party? Or following Jesus as the life of continual joy? akin to a week-long festival, a big, huge party. Only instead of a week, it's what? It's an eternity, an eternity of joy. You guys aren't looking very convinced this morning. I know it's Labor Day, and you probably stayed up too late watching the Broncos lose, but that's what Jesus offers to those who follow him. And it's not indirectly offered. It's not a secret thing, right? It's not some hidden aspect of the life of Jesus. It's right there. In fact, if you start looking for it, you'll see it everywhere in Scripture, actually. The disciples of John, disciples, the Pharisees, they see Jesus and they're confused, right? But Jesus didn't hide it in his response. He actually highlights it. Don't mourn. Don't fast. Don't any of that stuff. Celebrate. <laughs> Remember the scripture in Romans 12? It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I think Jesus would say, except in this case, when I am with you, we're not mourning. We're celebrating. Whatever else is going on in your life, we need to rejoice that Jesus is part of our lives. Rejoice with us. I mean, I'm not saying that life is not difficult. I'm not saying that life is not hard, right? But Jesus is a part of our life. And when he's a part of our life, what comes with that? We've been singing about the benefits. Salvation, among other things. I mean, every Sunday we get together. Yes, we have times of contemplation and, and remorse and even repentance. Yes, fasting and lamenting are still practices of his followers. Because we're longing for the day of his return, right? That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to this eternal party, the celebration of joy, the work that Jesus has already done in our lives. It has to be the last word. I mean, we can be depressed about the news. <laughs> we can be depressed about lots of things, but the, 
the work that Jesus has done in our lives, it always has to land on the upbeat. Has to. Or we actually don't know who Jesus is, right? I mean, it becomes an identity problem. We don't know who we are. We don't know that we actually are the people of hope, people of promise. God is with us. The Holy Spirit is in us. We are fully alive. We look forward to eternity, an eternity of joy, right? Amen? Anyone out there? An example of that. I'll just give you an example. It's kind of interesting. You look at lamentations, you look at limiting, you look at any of those types of things. It always starts with the dark, but it doesn't end there. Listen to Lamentations 3. Look at the movement. It says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness, the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Remembering where we were. It was difficult. It was hard. Yet, <laughs> you see that word? Yet, this I call to mind. Does that mean it comes automatically? automatically? No. Called to mind. Had to bring it up, right? This I called to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. He's worth it, isn't he? The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. <laughs> yes, there are times to remember we are in difficult times. We should even, maybe even let them push us or drive us to God, right? Because where do we really find our help? We find it in the Lord, not in our worrying, right? I mean, we should mourn our wandering. We should lament where we've been. But let's not forget to look up. Let's not forget to look forward. Let's remember who Jesus is. Let's remember what he has done. Do you realize that the God of the universe was willing to die so that we could be saved? And that wasn't because we earned salvation. It was while we were still sinners, right? That Christ died for us. Let's rejoice. God is good. God is faithful. And his mercies are new every morning. Amen? So how do we respond to this first message? I mean, I think I've just repeated it 20,000 times. But... Um, I think we just have to do this, right? We just have to do it. We got to practice it. We're going to close this morning by practicing our morning into celebrating movement, okay? We're going to start with a little bit of lamenting, maybe feeling <laughs> um, some mourning, <laughs> but we're going to move into celebration, okay?
And we're going to do this actually through communion. I think oftentimes we think of communion as this very, very mournful, subdued, somber time. And it very well is at the beginning. (laughs) As we remember what he's done for us, that he was willing, Jesus, to come and die for us. And we're looking at the elements. We're looking at the bread and the cup. And we're thinking, wow, what great cost to help my need, right? We should mourn that a little bit. But we can't stay there. He died for a reason. He died so that we might have life. So we've got to come out the other end celebrating. Can you do that with communion? Actually celebrate during communion? Is that an okay thing to do? Well, hurry up and get your morning done because we're going to get there, right? I do want to just remind you a few things. There's The bread is gluten-free. Got to kind of mention that every time. And um, they are still double stacked, so make sure you grab both. Both the juice and the bread are stacked together. Um, we kind of have this move counter counterclockwise in each section so you don't run into each other. Um, and really, come forward as you're ready. And then hold on to it and we'll take it together, okay? Would you pray with me? Oh God, I just am so thankful for your word. So thankful for what <laughs> what you've done in our lives. I just can't We just have such great needs, Lord. And it it makes me have a difficult time to think about what I caused you to go through. And Lord, that's what we should be thinking about as we hold those elements. We're going to grab those elements in a moment. Just pray that you just help us to consider the cost. The bread, symbol of your body being broken. The juice, your blood spilled for us. For us. And we're so sorry that you had to do that for us. Lord, we are we're just full of great joy that you were willing to do that for us. We celebrate the love that you have for us. We celebrate the desire that you have for a relationship with us, the the desire and willingness that you would give us mercy, that you'd offer us your grace. Lord, I think of other parts of my life that I'm super thankful for. I'm thankful for your amazing creation that you've allowed us to enjoy. Awesome. I think of all the great people I get to experience that you've created part of my life. So thankful. Would you help us, Lord, as we enter into this time? Would you help us to take seriously the sin that we've done? But Lord, help us to celebrate that you you have saved us and that we are on the other side of eternity now. We can look forward to joy, everlasting joy. We rejoice in thanksgiving this morning, Lord. Help us to never take you for granted. We'll give you all the praise.
come as you're ready.
Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you eat and be thankful? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. <clears throat> this cup is the, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and be thankful. May I hear a woohoo? Woohoo. People of God, you are blessed people. And I don't know if you struggle with going through life with a dour look on your face or allowing the difficulties in life get the best of you. But this week, <laughs> we choose to see things through transformed eyes, through the eyes that Jesus is enough. Jesus is the Savior, and we can trust in him and give him praise. We spend moments in celebration for the work that Jesus has already done. We live into the joy of the Lord. Can you do that? You are sent.